My goodness gracious, this Biden interview this morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to call in, did you see it? Probably not. It was on MSNBC. Uh, Joe Biden went on with Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe. And, well, we'll get to it. I got audio from it. Uh, I didn't even make Charlie uh, cut up audio from it because I knew there would be so much audio from it circulating on social media. I wouldn't need to. I just bookmarked a lot of it so we can listen together. Now, the phone number here, if you want to call in, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, I gave you the right number, not my cell phone number today. (laughs) Uh, Let us get into some of the audio. Again, all, all of this happening on morning joe this morning setting the the standards let me let me um just just play you some run-up audio the trump campaign pushed out this audio that was actually from the washington free beacon in the run-up to how the interview would go there's a lot of things i know about joe biden i've known him for a long time he is extremely affectionate extremely flirtatious in a completely safe way we all uh, i just tell you personally we love joe love him i think the next time i see joe biden if he doesn't hug me and give me a kiss and hold my hand while we're talking to you uh that's a new joe biden and that's not the joe biden i knew he's a nice guy He's not a predator. Again, about changing behavior, I'm not sure Joe Biden, I I would be sad if he changed his behavior. You and I both know him. He's a really wonderful person. He's affectionate and I'm I'm just gonna push back and I know I put myself at great peril here. There could be more, whatever. More of what, I wanna ask. Because so far these two women have gotten national coverage for something they say was not sexual. So what was it? affectionate and they didn't like the affection and i don't think me too wants to take down viable candidates for being affectionate and five women are uncomfortable with the way he hugged them and say one of them says she smelled his hair i can promise you i know joe biden he went up behind her and he took a well, deep breath because he was about to go on it's, stage it's, i want to explain that it's funny because there's that. a woman who accuses him of smelling her hair he's not interested in your hair Okay, he was going on stage and he took a deep breath before he went on stage and you took it deeply personal personally. And now you're writing a New York Times op ed about it, demanding an apology. This once again is completely ridiculous. I'm done. You guys can continue to talk about this. I won't. I refuse to give it any more time. So and, take and by, it away. And, and by the way, you know, I was I was looking through some old pictures. Uh, this this picture was from three years ago. I don't I don't usually can, show other than I just uh, and Mika waves him off. That 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 was the setup that the Republicans sent out uh, on Mika Brzezinski. Then there was John Heileman. John Heileman, you will remember is on the MSNBC Morning Joe panel, and he was one of the very first people willing to put one of Kavanaugh's unsubstantiated accusers on. He gave Kavanaugh's unsubstantiated accuser, uh, the the, the, uh, the Avenatti woman, gave her all sorts of cover, and now this. Uh, and the allegations he's facing now. In general, I think, you know, it's a strong statement. Um, I don't think it's going to... Th- I think that, that so far... The, new, the news media has been pretty good on this, which is to say the New York Times took its time and did a lengthy and rigorous uh, examination of this. It is the case that earlier this week there was reporting uh, that the Biden campaign had circulated talking points, which were which it then retracted it circulated talking points among uh, surrogates, which contained a, a blatant 
misstatement about that New York Times report. It said the talking point said that that surrogate should say that the New York Times had concluded that there was nothing to these allegations when, in fact, the New York Times' reporting did not conclude that. It didn't conclude the opposite either. What it said was uh, that they had some evidence that, uh, that supported her claims and some evidence that uh, suggested that didn't support her claims. And so I think that so far the press has not rushed on, in on this, and so far responsible news organizations seem to have been doing pretty rigorous reporting on this. You know, there, are, uh, there, there have been a couple new corroborating not witnesses, but people whom Tara Reid uh, talked to about this, who have come on the record this week and said that they have recollections of her talking about this incident uh, roughly contemporaneously. So that is an issue that uh, that I think that news organizations are going to dig more into. That was John Heidelman in the run up. Well, now uh, here we go. This is Mika Brzezinski beginning her interview with Joe Biden. I got a number of clips of audio for you to play. Minutes or so, you released a statement on Medium, and among other sa- things, you, you, you write this. There's only one place a complaint of this kind could be, the National Archives. I am requesting that the Secretary of State ask of uh, the Senate ask the archives to identify any record of the complaint she alleges she filed. If there was any such complaint, the record will be there. Are you preparing us for a complaint that might be revealed in some way? Are you confident there is nothing? I'm confident there's nothing. No one ever brought it to the attention of me 27 years ago. This is any assertion at all. No one that I'm aware of in my campaign, at, excuse my my Senate office at the time, is aware of any such uh, request and uh, uh, or any such complaint. Uh, and uh, and so the, I, 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 I'm not worried about it at all. If there is a complaint, that's where it would be. All right, now let's get into a little more of the fact that you have said in the past that if a woman goes under the lights and talks about something like this, we have to consider that the essence of this is real. Is the essence of what she is saying is real? Uh Uh-oh. Consider that the essence of this is real. Is the essence of what she is saying is real? Why do you think she's doing this? I'm not going to question her motive. I'm not going to get into that at all. I don't know why she's saying this. I don't know why after 27 years, all of a sudden this gets raised. I don't understand it. But I'm not going to go in and question her motive. I'm not going to attack her. She has a right to say whatever she wants to say. But I have a right to say, look at the facts. Check it out. Find out whether any of what she says is asserted or true. And based on the investigations that have taken place so far, to the best of my knowledge, by two major papers, they interviewed dozens of my staff members, not just senior staff, but staff members, I'm told. At least that's what they said. And... Yes. Nobody. This was not the atmosphere in my office at all. No one has ever said anything like this. But, Mr. Vice President, as it pertained to Dr. Ford, everyone wanted, uh, high-level Democrats said she should be believed, that they believed it happened. You said if someone like Dr. Ford were to come out, the essence of what she is saying has to be believed, has to be real. No. Why? And no, what I said, it has Why to be. Why is it real for Dr. Ford, but not for Tara Reid? There, because the facts are, look, she, I'm not suggesting she had no right to come forward. And I never, and I'm not saying any woman, they should come forward. They should be heard. And then it should be investigated. 
it should be investigated. And if there's anything that makes it that is consistent with what's being said and she makes the case or the case is made, then it should be believed. But ultimately, the truth matters. The truth matters. It's period. I fought my entire life to change, to change the whole notion of the law and the cultural sexual uh, around the culture around sexual assault. You know, one of the things he misses here, notice how he hides behind the issue of his staff. He doesn't acknowledge that the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and other media outlets encountered individuals who, as John Heileman pointed out, uh, contemporaneous to the uh, alleged assault, said Tara Reid told them about that. A, a, a little more here. I'm, I'm just talking about her name, not anybody else in those records. A search for that. Nothing classified with the president or anybody else. I'm just asking, why not do a search for Tara Reid's name in the University of Delaware records? (laughs) Oh, oh. Now, here's the money clip. You've already heard it, but this is what the RNC is pushing out really, really hard. Vice President, as it pertained to Dr. Ford... Everyone wanted uh, high level Democrats said she should be believed that they believed it happened. You said someone like Dr. Ford were to come out. The essence of what she is saying has to be believed, has to be real. No, why? No, what I said, it has to be. Why is it real for Dr. Ford, but not for Tara Reid? Because the facts are that, look, she I'm not suggesting she had no right to come forward. And I never and I'm not saying any woman, they should come forward. They should be heard. And then it should be investigated. It should be investigated. And if there's anything that makes it that is consistent with what's being said and she makes the case or the case is made, then it should be believed. But ultimately, the truth matters. The truth matters. It's period. I fought my entire life to change, to change the whole notion of the law and the cultural sexual uh, around the culture around sexual assault. And I fought to strengthen and protect the process for survivors. I believe we've come a long way and we have a long way to go in this system before we, in fact, are in a position that there's a fair and unbiased view. But uh, at the end of the day, it has to be looked at. These claims are not true. There's no cooperation. I mean, they're not true. There's Joe Biden making his case. Uh, Again, I would continue to maintain that the issue is not whether or not Tara Reid's claims are true. I think the issue is that Democrats in the media tried to destroy a good man's reputation based on a single source where there were no identifying uh, corroborating witnesses no real-time communication by the supposed victim and anyone. And now they're trying to throw all of that out. And, and good for Mika Brzezinski pointing that out to Joe Biden, that that was his standard, then believe all women. And he tried to come back and make it about himself and his record. But, you know, when Brett Kavanaugh did that, they said that was just further proof that he had probably done it because he felt guilty and he was doing these things. Remember, uh, when Brett Kavanaugh, uh, we, we first dispassionately tried to say that the allegations against him were wrong. The media said, well, if they, if, if he was telling the truth, if he was telling the truth, he would be angry. 
And when next he appeared before the Senate and he was angry, the response was that, oh, well, he's so angry, he must have done it because no one would be that unhinged. I was fearful for my life watching him through the TV screen. He was so unangry. That's the sign of a demented, depraved soul. And they want to give a complete pass on Joe Biden here. That, that's the issue here. That's the issue. Tara Reid had ample opportunity over a number of years to come forward and make her case. She did. And she didn't. She finally did in a podcast. And unlike Christine Blasey Ford, Tara Reid has people that she told contemporaneously, including family members, which Christine Blasey Ford didn't have. It's not that she didn't have family. She didn't tell them. She has a roommate. She has. A, she told the specifics that she was taken off handling interns and was moved away from the interns. And the interns who were there at the time, remember, she was abruptly reassigned before being let go. She has a neighbor in California who says that within a couple of years, Tara Reid, and talk about her former life, talking about working in Capitol Hill, said Joe Biden sexually assaulted her. All of these sorts of things line up. We don't have any of that for Christine Blasey Ford. And the FBI paused the, or the the Senate paused its nominations process for Brett Kavanaugh so the FBI could interview everybody that Christine Blasey Ford gave them to. And none of them remembered. And then there were other people who came forward and said, oh, me too, me too, me too. And, and they overwhelmingly contradicted each other and themselves. Remember NBC ran that one story about the woman who now lived in Colorado who Brett Kavanaugh shoved her up against the wall and started kissing on her after they left a restaurant, and it turns out there's absolutely no way he could have done that based on the information given, but NBC ran that story anyway? Remember that? This isn't about whether Joe Biden sexually assaulted a woman in the early 1990s. Maybe it should be, but it's not. This is about how the media and the Democrats held Brett Kavanaugh to a standard and now refuse to hold Joe Biden to that standard. It was believe all women, and now it's, oh, well, believe all women, but investigate. And Brett Kavanaugh didn't get a real investigation. If Brett Kavanaugh didn't get a real investigation, then neither did Joe Biden with the New York Times. He's hiding behind the New York Times, which itself has come out and said, don't hide behind us. We actually found people who backed up her story. I do want to give some credit where it's due, though, to Mika Brzezinski. They essentially tried to rough up the ref. I played you the video that came out first of her talking about Joe Biden. I know she likes him. I know they're friends. And I thought she did a good job pushing him on these issues. And this should be the beginning, not the end of it. I'm afraid it's going to be the end of it. And yet again, that'll be another part of the double standard here. Is they'll say, oh, well, Mika Brzezinski asked all the questions. Let's move on. No. It's time to ask more questions. Also, why isn't the media getting Tara Reid on? Why, why won't they bring Tara Reid on? They're trying to get Fox to interview her so they can dismiss it and say, oh, it's well, she went on Fox. Clearly, this is partisan. That's what they're going to do. They're, gonna, they're not going to have her on. And then she's going to go on Fox and say, it's partisan. We don't need to consider this anymore. That's what's going to happen here. It is that predictable. Tomorrow, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are going to fly over Atlanta. They're going to begin in Marietta. They're going to go up to Roswell and Sandy Springs, across downtown Atlanta, make a circle through the heart of the city, and then go down to Peachtree City and over to Noonan, uh, between, flying between Peachtree City and Sharpsburg. Uh, if you want to go see them, you can. And in the next hour, Jonathan Hoffman is going to join me. He's the chief spokesman for the Pentagon talking about uh, the flight plan, where you can see them, and why they're doing it, and the rest. Right now, uh, let's go to the phones. I want to go to Robin. Robin, welcome to the program. 
Yes, I'm glad you picked on my call, and thank sure. you very much. I'll, I'll have a, really a, a few questions. As far as the governor, he's allowing the, the uh, citizens who have, haven't had a license before to go and get the license without taking a road test. Do you think that it is safe they have those uh, cars on the streets with those students who do not know how to drive? Uh, and another question as far as with the banks and everything, do with these stimulus checks, do you think that it's right for them to be allowing the creditors to take that money out of those checking accounts or bank account that these uh, citizens are getting. And the third question I want to as well, they're talking about Joe Biden as far as his affairs. Are they going to bring up the affairs of the president of the United States, Trump? Yes, all those affairs that he uh, right. are going to bring those up. And, well, last but not least, I want to ask a question. Do you think that it's fair to have uh, – uh, where the citizens uh, 65 years or older to stay in the house, and as, especially when the time for voting is time for voting, and the oldest citizens are the ones who go out and vote, but yet still they want to have a curfew on them to stay at home. Do you think that's, that's correct okay, or that, right? That, that, good questions, uh, all of them. You. Robin, let, let me answer these for you. And, uh, number one, there are enough bad drivers out there that a few more bad drivers won't hurt, I don't think. Uh, and in it's going to be hard to do the driver's test right now. So might as well. Their parents have been practicing. All these kids have been having uh, driver's ed classes to be able to get them. Might as well. Uh, on the second one, uh, yeah, if you've contractually obligated to allow creditors to withdraw from the bank, then uh, yes. I think it's, it's perfectly fine and within the rights of the of the uh, creditors to be able to do that. Georgia has a private contract right in the Constitution, so there's really no way for the government to stop it based on the Georgia Constitution. There's a private contract right there between creditors and debtors to be able to do stuff like that that the state can't interfere with. So the state couldn't stop it if they wanted to. Uh, third, on the other one, it, yeah, you know, listen, Trump has his own women history. I think the big issue here, though, is that all of that stuff was thoroughly covered in 2016 and people voted for him. Uh, more has come out since then, and that has also been covered. The Biden stuff is fairly new, and the issue here really isn't uh, whether or not Biden did it. It Frankly, it's it's one woman making the allegation. Uh, with, with Trump, there were a bunch. But uh, with Joe Biden and this one allegation, the media double standard is amazing to see. It is actually impressive to see the media running from the standard they set with Brett Kavanaugh, believe all women. It is the the woman making the accusation who must be believed to empower other women to do the same, regardless of the veracity of it. And then the last one on voting, that's going to be a difficult one, and it's going to be interesting to see how the governor navigates it. We've got until June to figure it out. Uh, the election is going to be before shelter in place expires. Maybe they'll move the election one more week out. I suspect, though, you got ample time to get absentee balloting. Senior citizens can get their ballots, uh, do their ballots by absentee balloting. They probably should. Everybody probably should vote by absentee. I guess my wife and I need to get our absentee ballot for men. Everybody should be voting by absentee ballot. So there are still ways to vote. Uh, there are still ways to vote, less cumbersome ways, and, and encourage senior citizens to do that. Uh, the governor has the ability to to tell people to shelter in place, but he's not going to enforce it. But use your best judgment. If the virus starts going out again, we're all going to have to get back in our houses. So let's do what we can to make sure the virus doesn't start spreading in the state of Georgia, because frankly, I'm ready to go get a haircut. I need to get out of the house.
It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Paycheck Protection Program is a lifeline for small businesses. So wrote Dr. Chris Stansbury at townhall.com. He appeared at the White House with the president. He wrote, as a small business owner in West Virginia, I have prepared for many different scenarios, but the coronavirus has left me feeling overwhelmed, not only for the future of my business, but for my employees as well. This invisible enemy is forcing me to cope with a reality where our seven offices are closed indefinitely. Thankfully, Congress passed and President Trump signed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act, which includes $349 billion in loans to small businesses as part of the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, writing in support of that, he appeared at the White House. He's a former Republican member of the West Virginia House of Delegates, co-founder of West Virginia Eye Consultants in Charleston, West Virginia. And Dr. Chris Stansbury is joining me to talk about this and the Payroll Protection Program. Dr. Stansbury, thanks very much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. If you wouldn't mind, give me an overview of where your business stands this morning in West Virginia. So right now we are poised for reopening on Monday, May 4th. Uh, Governor Justice was waiting for the average numbers to drop below 3% across the state. And once that happened, uh, he was going to begin phase one of reopening our economy. And thankfully, optometry, elective surgery, that sort of thing are included in phase one. So we are recalling all of our employees and getting geared up to open up on Monday morning. Wow, uh, that's fantastic. Now, I know you guys uh, were able to get into the payroll protection program and uh, were invited to the White House. What was? How do you get invited to the White House to do something like this? It was it was amazing. The chain of events that happened to, to make that reality was pretty incredible. I've been working with a group called Job Creators Network, and they advocate at the national level for small businesses for Main Street. And so I've been working with them the last couple of years, and I got a phone call one day saying, hey, any interest in participating in a White House event? And of course, I said yes. And so next thing I know, I got a phone call from the White House. We went through several uh, different potential events and finally uh, settled on this uh, event on Tuesday. And I I packed my bags and headed for D.C. It was an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I bet. Okay, so were you able to find a hotel room that would take you in D.C.? Thankfully, my in-laws live me live within uh, three hours of D.C., so I stayed with them and then and drove the rest of the way in that morning. Oh, that's good. You know, I, I, I yeah. was thinking that I was going to have to go up there this summer, and now I'm here, and they may stay closed until August. And, geez, and, and so you're reopening on Monday. When? How long were you all closed? Uh, we shut down in uh, it was the middle of March, and so we, we've been down now for about five weeks. And how many employees do you have? We had uh, almost 60 employees when we had to shut down, so it was uh, it was devastating. We've grown the practice from nothing. We started cold in 2011 and have grown to seven locations with seven doctors and almost 60 employees, and we just celebrated our ninth anniversary in February, and then to have to close it all down in March was, was devastating. Jeez. Now, did, was payroll protection able to cover the, the salaries for all the employees? Thankfully, as soon as we received that, uh, we began to bring employees back because we knew we were going to get to reopen. We just weren't exactly sure when. So we, we knew we were going to start to get geared up. So we started bring, bringing people back to help us uh, get ready. And then uh, as soon as we heard the opening date, we're going to be able to bring everybody else back. So, yeah, the, the payroll protection program has really been a lifeline for us. It's allowed us to continue to keep the bills paid and keep the lights on and get ready for uh, what we knew was eventually coming, which was reopening of the economy. 
Well, I'm a big fan of the Job Creators Network, and they reached out and, and asked if I wanted to have you on, and it didn't hesitate to say yes. Um, they do such good work, and I know uh, that a lot of uh, those of you who are affiliated with the program are advocating for more along the way and also trying to counterbalance this belief that some have that, hey, this is just proof that we need the government to give us universal basic income and socialism and the like. And, and how, do you, how do you thread that balance and explain to people that, you know, this, this was a, a special circumstance and, and this isn't something we should have as the norm with the government doing this for businesses? Well, you know, business owners in general are self-reliant and perseverant and, you know, fight tooth and nail to get to where they are and never anticipate having to take any sort of handout. And that's really not what the PPP is. It's a loan that's forgivable if certain conditions are met. And in these extraordinary circumstances, that's really what was required unless we wanted catastrophic failure of businesses across the country, which would have led to catastrophic long-term unemployment. So, yeah, these are definitely special circumstances. Ordinarily, I don't think it's required. Again, us, us business owners are tough and resilient and work hard to get where we are. We don't grow beyond our means. And uh, I, I don't think that uh, you know, having regular funded income from the federal government is something that's required. That's what capitalism's for. That's what uh, you know, job creators are for across this country. Now, how is your business going to have to reopen? What's going to change about your business as you reopen? Well, the PPE is something that's going to be universal now. You know, everybody's going to be in a mask, patients, staff. Uh, we now have plexiglass guards at the check-in station and the checkouts, and the equipment's covered in special protective gear. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, we're on, you know, we're still on high alert for the possible spread of coronavirus and, and will be for some time. And so this is going to become our new normal. Um, it's definitely going to change the way we do business. Our patients are now not going to wait in a waiting room together. They're going to spend time waiting in their car until their appointment time comes up, and then they'll be called in and taken immediately through the, the process without having to sit around each other. So it's, it's going to change the look and feel of the practice. Uh, but ultimately, we're going to, get, we're going to adapt and uh, still be able to take care of patients and do so in a pretty uh, effective and efficient manner. Just It's going to be very different for a while. And what would you like to see going forward, both in terms of, of what the, the governor and the legislature in West Virginia do and the federal government does to uh, continue to help businesses get back on their feet? Well, I think we need to look at uh, the payroll tax holiday. Uh, it would be great to be able to bring back people without having that staring in the face. Um, that's that's a pretty interesting thing for small business owners. Uh, one thing, too, I'd like the, the federal government to consider is the uh, the $600 a week bonus that they've been paying to people who are on unemployment, uh, it would be great if they would continue some sort of bonus for people who are accepting their employment back or are getting hired because you don't want to penalize people um, for taking a job or going back to their job. You want to make sure that they feel that you know, they're doing the right thing by going back to work, but not that they're leaving any money on the table by you know, not staying home on unemployment. So it'd be nice to have some continuation of that benefit even after they have uh, taken their job back. You know, that's a good point I hadn't thought of because I, I continue to see these stories on CNBC and elsewhere of people who don't want to go back to work because they're making more money on unemployment and, and being able to incentivize people going back to work probably would be one of the best things Congress could start doing as the nation reopens. Absolutely. I mean, we want the economy to get going again. We don't want to be propped up by stimulus checks and everything else. We want people to get back to work. And uh, unemployment is a safety net, and it's a necessary thing in a crisis like this for sure. But we don't want people to feel incentivized to, to stay home and not go back to the workforce. We want to get them back to work as quickly as we can.
Well, listen, Dr. Sanbury, thank you very much for uh, stopping by, and good luck on the reopening next week. Uh, Glad you were able to be at the White House, and and your op-ed was great. I'm going to push it out to the audience as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate your time, buddy. Stay safe. You too. Dr. Chris Stansbury, I wrote this op-ed. Let me give you a little more of a a synopsis of it. And if you want to find out more, you can find the link. Go to the uh, Job Creators Network. Uh, What is Job Creators? Job Creators Network. What is their website link? I think it's JC. Yes, JobCreatorsNetwork.com. You can find it. By the way, if you're a small business, I recommend the Job Creators Network. Uh, Really, really good people. Uh, Bernie Marcus helped start the group. uh, And, if you know, the founder of Home Depot. They're a good group. uh, And they advocate small business uh, free market solutions. And let me read you a little bit about uh, a little more from what Sansbury wrote. The Paycheck Protection Program and other initiatives are preparing the economy for resurgence when the pandemic prices. Alfredo Ortiz, the the CEO of the Job Creators Network, argues there's more work to do to ensure small businesses get the loans they need. But the groundwork is being laid for a massive Main Street recovery when this is over. America's economic future depends on keeping small businesses afloat during this disaster. No one predicted this, but thankfully President Trump is taking strong actions to combat the coronavirus and to help businesses survive a period of economic turbulence. Allocating $349 billion in forgivable loans to in entrepreneurs proves that the president is dedicated to protecting American workers. Uh, this is as good as time as any for me to tell you, remind you that First Liberty of Georgia, First Liberty Building and Loans has been doing this since 93, helping small businesses. And uh, I think that PPP is tapped out again and I think Congress is going to add some more to it. Uh, there, there was some discussion of how they were going to proceed with this. Uh, a lot of it being uh, the Democrats now want to do more for hospitals. They don't want to do straight PPP again. They want to bail out uh, businesses. They want to bail out banks. They want to do all sorts of other stuff uh, out there. And I suspect we're going to see a lot more of this coming up soon. In fact, Mitch McConnell is out uh, largely saying that. We're going to have to find ways to continue to bail out businesses and do more recovery projects because, you know, we're also having a problem with, for example, banks. Uh, Let me give you the example here. Coliseum Medical Center in Macon, Georgia, where I am. Uh, We live close to Coliseum Northside Hospital, and they are essentially winding down a lot of operations there, including their ICU facilities. And they're moving people to the main Coliseum Hospital in downtown Macon. The reason being is because uh, a lot of people aren't going to the hospital right now. They're trying to avoid getting the virus. And so they've got space uh, at both hospitals now as the virus kind of winds down. A lot of uh, COVID-19 patients are being treated by the Medical Center of uh, Central Georgia. I'm sorry, Navicent Health for the life of me. It would a stupid rebranding, but nonetheless, um, the Medical Center of Central Georgia uh, and uh, Coliseum has has is trying to reallocate space and save themselves some money. And, and this is one of the weird, weird effects of this virus is that a lot of hospitals are struggling right now because they get so much of their money on elective surgery. And elective surgery is surgery that can be scheduled, not emergency surgery. It, it's you're going in to get your gallbladder removed, going in to get your hernia taken care of, going in to get a non-malignant tumor taken care of, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and... They're not doing a lot of those surgeries right now. They want to get back to doing elective surgery, and until they get back to capacity, they're having trouble. Here's Mitch McConnell talking about what may have to come next. Well, what I've said is we've already provided $150 billion in previous bills in the last month or six weeks for state and local government. Bankruptcy is obviously a decision, if it were legal, 
would be made at the state level. I don't think many states would choose that option. Uh, but the point is, we're not interested in borrowing money from future generations to send down to states to help them with bad decisions they've made in the past unrelated to the coronavirus epidemic. We're more than happy and already have sent $150 billion down to states and localities to deal with the pandemic. And I think any additional assistance that we provide for state and local government also needs to include some things that are important uh, for everybody else. That is the uh, doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, uh, the brave businesses that will be uh, reopening concerned about an epidemic of lawsuits that are going to be brought by the plaintiff's bar all over America in the wake of this pandemic. So we don't need an epidemic of lawsuits in the wake of the pandemic. And so if we do another uh, uh, rescue package, and we may, uh, we need to take our time, do it right, and it needs to include these liability protections so that all of these brave workers and brave businesses that will be reopening are not subjected uh, to this second uh, epidemic of, of litigation. So there you have it. And one of the big issues, as he pointed out there towards the end, is, is litigation. We don't want businesses to start getting sued uh, because they because they bring employees back to work and the employees spread the virus, or someone goes to a business. What if you go to your doctor's office and you get COVID-19, you needed to go to the doctor's office, the doctor's office worked uh, open for you, you go to the doctor's office, you wind up getting the virus, and so you sue your doctor who you needed them there, so they were there for you, and then you sue them. Uh, it, it is a big issue. We don't want trial lawyers getting rich off of people going back to work or going into businesses and getting the virus, and we can't stay home forever, so we got to find a balance. And uh, I think you're going to have to see some level of litigation reform to make that happen. Uh, McConnell pushing for it very aggressively. All right, we're going to jump back to the Biden stuff. We got phone calls on it. Uh, we, we got a great montage I need to play for you. Uh, the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to the phones. Barry, calling from Rome, listening on WRGA. Welcome, Barry. How are you? I'm doing good, Eric. I just wanted to comment about um, this Biden issue. It seems that everybody is missing the gorilla issue. Biden committed an act that was arguably a criminal invasion of privacy against uh, the uh, Senate staffer. But the, but the point is, he, she was a subordinate. He abused his power over a subordinate. And that same character flaw has showed up with Biden on other occasions in the Ukraine. He abused his power over a subordinate. Um. And, you know, that same argument was made against him in the Anita Hill hearing. He uh, his his career is pockmarked with these um, abuses of power over the powerless. That's a fair point. Uh, it is a very fair point. Uh, I would say that it's not an abuse of power. Well, it is an abuse of power, but also it would be a criminal assault. 
uh, if he did what Tara Reid alleges. So that there is a, a criminal aspect to it beyond abuse of power. You're right. Uh, and also uh, his handling of China when he was vice president, allowing his son and John Kerry's son to go with him and strike deals uh, when he flew over there on Air Force Two. Those are real issues that the Biden team has to address. Uh, I would, my, how do I, how do I thread this needle here? I agree with everything Barry just said. Let me start with that. It is an abuse of power issue. The problem I would venture to guess is that it's 30 years old and there was never a complaint and the statute of limitations would have passed. And so that then moves to the media double standard that there was so much of the situation that the media held up with Brett Kavanaugh that they refused to hold up. Now, consider this montage I wanted to play for you. This is Nancy Pelosi talking about Christine Blasey Ford and Tara Reid. The investigation on Justice Kavanaugh, when a very similar uh, allegation came out on him, well, let, let me just say, uh, I, I respect your question, and I don't need a, a, a lecture or a speech. We're here to show our respect for all women who have a case, have it respected for due process, to investigate, to find the truth, not fear it. Here's the thing. I have complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son, and uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard and be listened to. But these, what's happening here has lifetime impacts. The crimes themselves, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, allegations that have been made are about uh, offenses that have a lifetime impact. There is also due process. And uh, the fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden. There is an allegation made against a person an allegation, as I said before, that has lifetime impact on a person to be violated in that way by a person who wants a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Uh, we, there's been statements from his campaign, or not his campaign, but his former employees who ran his offices and the rest, that there was never any record of this. Instead of asking questions, the Republican leadership fears the truth. There was never any record. And that uh, nobody ever came forward or nobody... Really? They're so afraid of the truth. And they're so afraid of a woman, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, for the truth that she will tell. I am so proud. The happiest day for me this week was to support Joe Biden for President of the United States. Uh, I join a leader... Schumer and calling for Judge Kavanaugh to withdraw his name from consideration. He's a person of great integrity, a great concern for the American people. The Judiciary Committee in the Senate decide to go forth. They have to know that they are having a demoralizing impact and a chilling effect on the entire movement of courageous women who are telling their stories and demanding justice. He authored the Violence Against Women Act uh, when he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee uh, in the 90s. So there are two equities to be weighed. One equity is the integrity of the Supreme Court. The other equity to be weighed is the respect that we have for women when they come forward. Ah, uh, yes, the double standards. It's actually rather impressive. 
you know, the president also chimed in on Joe Biden and says he, he knows about people who make up these things. I, I don't have time to play that clip for you. I, I will play that clip when we come back. We'll talk about this. Also, uh, at the bottom of the next hour, Jonathan Hoffman from the Pentagon is going to join me to talk about the Blue Angel Thunderbird flyover. They're coming to the Atlanta area, Peachtree City, Noonan, Roswell, Sandy Springs, Atlanta. Uh, they're going to fly over the city jointly. They never fly together. They are now. They've been doing it in cities across America. Jonathan Hoffman, the spokesman for the Pentagon, is going to join me to talk about it. And at 11 o'clock, Governor Kemp is going to join me. We're out of shelter in place, folks. We are out of shelter in place. And so we are going to talk about uh, what goes forward and also what happens if the virus spikes. Uh, you're gonna, not going to want to miss my conversation with Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, uh, at 11 o'clock. When we come back, though, we do need to move into a whole lot of other stuff that's happening, a little more on Tara Reid, but also, also, are the Democrats now overplaying their hand in the bailouts and the programs because Nancy Pelosi's upset that illegal aliens may not get stimulus checks from the federal government. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson show coming up in the top of the next hour. Governor Brian Kemp is going to join me. We are out of shelter in place, kind of, sort of. Uh, we'll get into the implications of it. And at the bottom of this hour, I'm going to talk to Jonathan Hoffman. He is the chief spokesman for the Pentagon and there's going to be a Blue Angel Thunderbird flyover tomorrow, beginning at 1.35 p.m. in the Atlanta area. They're going to take off from Dobbins Air Force Base in Marietta. They're going to fly down to basically where uh, my office in Atlanta is. They're going to cross over it, uh, turn around and, and head back north to Sandy Springs, uh, go through East Cobb, loop around Roswell, come back down. Uh, the interstate there over Atlantic Station, do a loop over over downtown Atlanta, go down, cross the airport, go down between uh, Fayetteville and Tyrone to cross the center of Peachtree City, loop around, uh, and then head over to Noonan uh, where they will be done and they will head off to another city. Uh, that will take, it will be all of 1.35 to 1.45 p.m., and they will then be uh, done at 2 p.m. So it's a 25-minute joint flyover salute to frontline COVID-19 responders. Uh, times are subject to change. Residents should observe the flyover from the safety of their home quarantine, should refrain from traveling to see the flyover. Social distancing should be practiced at all time. Yeah, but you know people are going to travel to go see this. Um, so the, uh, Jonathan Hoffman from the Pentagon is going to join me to talk about this at the bottom of the hour and the governor then, uh, at the top of the hour will also, uh, join me to talk about uh, getting out of quarantine right now, though, right now, I, I gotta, I gotta spend a little more time on the Biden terror read stuff. He was on morning Joe. If you missed the first hour, text the word show to three, three, seven, seven, seven. You can catch the highlights from the morning Joe interview. I, I, I played them. We'll take your phone calls here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But the president weighed in on this. So regarding uh, Joe Biden, your campaign and surrogates going after him pretty hard with regard to these allegations from Tara Reid. What do you say no, to Joe I don't Biden? Think so. I don't think they're going after him hard with regard to Tara Allegations, Reed. and what do you say to Joe I Biden? I don't know anything about it. I, I don't know uh, exactly. I think he should respond you know it's uh, 
It could be false accusations. I know all about false accusations. I've been falsely charged numerous times. Uh, and uh, there is such a thing. Uh, if, you look at, uh, if you look at Brett Kavanaugh, this is an outstanding man. He was falsely charged. What happened with him was an absolute disgrace to our country. And I guess three of the four women have now admitted that. And of the fourth, give me a break. I mean, take a look. Uh, 36 years, uh, that is, uh, look, this is a fine man. I saw a man suffering so unfairly. I'm talking about Brett Kavanaugh. So, but I don't know, I can't speak for Biden. I can only say that I think he should respond. I think he should answer them. He should answer. Well, he tried to answer some this morning. Uh, the problem is, you know, Mika Brzezinski, let, let me replay this quip, uh, clip for those of you who are joining uh, and didn't, uh, weren't here earlier, because this is worthwhile. And then I got an extended clip of Biden that's worth playing. This is the uh, one of the exchanges with Mika Brzezinski and Joe Biden. You need to know going into this. Mika Brzezinski very much likes Joe Biden and has said in the past that she didn't really believe the accusations about him. And so I do want to give her some credit for daring to not only push him on some of this stuff, she pushed him harder than Don Lemon pushed Stacey Abrams in defense of Joe Biden. Uh, She also interrupted him and she called him out on his double standard. Vice President, as it pertained to Dr. Ford. Everyone wanted, uh, high-level Democrats said she should be believed, that they believed it happened. You said if someone like Dr. Ford were to come out, the essence of what she is saying has to be believed, has to be real. No. Why? Uh, no, what I said, it has Why to be. Why is it real for Dr. Ford, but not for Tara Reid? There, because the facts are that, look, she, I'm not suggesting she had no right to come forward. And I never, and I'm not saying any woman, they should come forward. They should be heard. And then it should be investigated. It should be investigated. And if there's anything that makes it, that is consistent with what's being said, and she makes the case or the case is made, then it should be believed. But ultimately, the truth matters. Ultimately, the truth matters. Well, here's Joe Biden from the Kavanaugh situation. I think they should do an FBI investigation. We did that for Anita Hill, took two days, number one. And number two, most importantly, Anita Hill was vilified when she came forward by a lot of my colleagues, character assassination. I wish I could have done more to prevent those questions and the way they asked them. I hope my colleagues learned from that, learned from that. She deserves to be treated with dignity. It takes enormous courage for a woman to come forward on the bright lights of millions of people watching and relive something that happened to her, assert that something happened to her. And she should be treated with respect. You brought up Anita Hill. You were uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee back in 1991. You were roundly criticized for uh, not doing more uh, during that hearing. Um, Looking back on that, Specifically, how would you advise senators to proceed next week? And, and how do you balance um, the rights of, of, of a woman who's making accusations like this versus the presumption that a person is innocent until proven guilty? Well, I think the presumption should exist, but what should happen is the woman should be given the benefit of the doubt and not be, not be uh, um, you know, uh, abused again by the system. My biggest regret was I didn't know how I could shut you off if you were a senator and you were attacking. Anita Hill's character. Under the Senate rules, I can't gavel you down and say you can't ask that question, although I tried. And so what happened was she got victimized again during during the process. And uh, um, I believed her. 
when she came forward. I encouraged her to come forward. We were in a position where we got the FBI to do an investigation, um, and I voted against Clarence Thomas. He only got seven votes. He got seven yes and seven no's. It was a tie vote in the committee. But I hope that they understand what courage it takes for someone to come forward and relive what they, they believe happened to them and let them state it, but treat her with respect. Ask tough questions. Ask substantive questions. Where were you? What said, who said what, et cetera? But don't go after the character, not the character assassination. Don't go after the character assassination. Uh, okay, okay. But ask tough questions, but believe the woman, female accusers, they need to be given the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't really, he says he won't, he'll give Terry the benefit of the doubt. And, and you know, one, one nice thing about Biden, one thing he was careful about doing is he did not attack Tara Reid. He said she's wrong, but he didn't attack her, which is a good thing. But my goodness, uh, I, what I, here, here's what I predict will happen, and I hope I'm wrong on this. I, I actually really do hope I'm wrong on this. My prediction is that people are going to, on the left, and reporters who are on the left are going to say, yeah, Mika Brzezinski asked all the questions. There's no reason to pursue this. There's no there there. And and they won't. This should be the beginning, not the end. And we should be able to have further questions. And Joe Biden should have to ask, be asked several times, just like anyone else in his situation would. He should have to be asked and do multiple interviews, not just one interview. You know, if you go back to 1992, when I was a kid, Bill Clinton was accused of of sexual harassment of Jennifer Flowers. While he was on the campaign trail in 92, he seen Hillary Clinton famously sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes. The lights fell over, nearly took out Hillary Clinton. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's an irony there. <laughs> I shouldn't go there. Uh, someone saw the future on Jeffrey Epstein's behalf and tried to stop. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Totally inappropriate. I apologize. Um, nonetheless, uh, they had this interview and, and literally the lights fell over. Bill grabs Hillary, yanks up. That led to some conspiracy theorists thinking that that was intentional to show how Bill protected Hillary and he'd never do this. Um, no, that wasn't really the case. But nonetheless, uh, once that opened the door with the Jennifer Flowers stuff, Clinton had to ask answer the questions repeatedly for several weeks. And Jennifer Flowers came out and also did interviews. And, and that's kind of the thing here is that no one in the media is interviewing Tara Reid. And she's turned down Sean Hannity, which was smart on her behalf. She's going to go to Chris Wallace, it looks like, on Fox. But that's part of what they're doing. The media wants her to go to Fox so they can say, ah, this is a partisan hit job. She went to Fox. But ultimately, it's because they're not asking her to come on. And that's really on them, not on Tara Reid. And that's really rather shameful, I think. Um, I, I, I really do think that we're going to see a, a more exposure of this media double standard when it comes to what happened with Biden and uh, Tara Reid. And again, I, I still maintain, and I know there are some people, no, he should be criminally prosecuted. The statute of limitations is over with. I'm sorry. He, he's not going to be criminally prosecuted. And Tara Reid had multiple opportunities over the years to raise the issue. And she didn't, and I think that is relevant. You know who doesn't think that's relevant is Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams doesn't think it's relevant. 
Uh, I personally think that stuff like that is relevant, that she had the opportunity. She did not come forward at the time. Uh, I, I think it's relevant. But all of that being said, I'm afraid the media is just going to say, yeah, we're not going to pursue this. And that's going to further undermine the media's credibility. Y'all, I, 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 you know, listen, I, I realize I'm totally in the minority. And, and you know what? When I was a campaign manager, campaign consultant, I always tell my clients, know when you're in the minority, even when you think you're right. And, and here I am. I, I know I'm in the minority, but I also know I'm right on this. We need a, an honest media in this country. We need a fair We don't need a media that tells us what we want to hear. And unfortunately, that's rather where we are right now is we have too many people on both sides who only want to hear what they want to hear. I mean, take, for example, the YouTube video of, of my cousin, Dr. Erickson, out in California. He's not really my cousin, um, Dan Erickson. I, I No relation that I know of. Um, it, but he, he and his colleague put up that video. It was uh, tweeted by Elon Musk and others. YouTube ultimately took it down. I can't tell you the number of people who have emailed me and said, you got to watch this video. Th- these people are making sense. And I watched the video and, and they made a lot of sense. They made a whole lot of sense. But then I watched videos of other doctors and they also made a whole lot of sense who were countering them. And then it turns out they said that the the state and the local government uh, public health officials supported them. And, and those guys came out and said, no, we don't which in my mind kind of undermined their credibility. And then a, a, an epidemiologist uh, here in Atlanta uh, watched the video and pointed out on her social media feed and says, these guys are only looking at their own clients ultimately is what it gets to. In addition to the Stanford study, and she pointed out the flaws that I pointed out to you, but she said that, that if you think you have coronavirus, you're not going to an ambulatory care center. You're actually going to the emergency room. And so they're not seeing all of those emergent patients. And so their data is uh, statistically it's flawed. Uh, based on what's going on there. And I I do frankly believe that the bulk of the epidemiologists pointing out their flaws are right. And yet I heard, no, no, he's right. He's right because he tells me exactly what I believe. We've lost the ability in this country to hear stuff that uh, challenges our thinking and, and maybe convinces us. It, no one wants to be convinced anymore. They just want to know that they're already right. And that's part of the problem with the media. The media never wants to present two sides of the coin. I mean, take global warming, for example. I suspect more people would be willing to acknowledge the world is heating up if the media was not so dogmatic that you are to blame for it. Because there is a dogmatic prevailing belief that it is all mankind's fault. And that's all the media wants to talk about. It doesn't want to talk about cyclical. It doesn't want to talk about adaptability. It doesn't want to do any of that. you got to accept the blame and give up your entire way of life or else. And when you do that, of course, you're going to have people say, no, I'm, I'm not even going to go down this road. I don't blame them. I'm actually of the position that, you know what, I, I, I do think that there's an issue here. There is a there there, but also I don't care. We're adaptable people and I'm not going to give up the Western, I'm not going to give up Western civilization. So a bunch of communists turn environmentalists when the Soviet Union stops subsidizing them uh, can have their way in, in eradicate capitalism. But that's just me. Hello there. At the bottom of the hour, Jonathan Hoffman for the Pentagon is going to join me to talk about the flyover. But uh, I am going to also say that at the top of the hour, the governor is going to be joining me. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting, uh, speaking of the governor, uh, getting a message from someone close to him. You know, there is polling out that shows uh, if the election were held today, Governor Kemp and the GOP in Georgia are toast because of the COVID-19 situation. Kelly Leffler is uh, cratered in the polling, and the president and Joe Biden would be tied if the election were held today. Now, there are a couple of things you need to know about this poll, though. 
One, it pretty well deviates from a lot of the public polling out there. Two, I am told by people inside the Republican Party, outside of the governor's office, that uh, they believe that this polling is is very sympathetically conducted by the speaker and, and designed to make everyone else in the party look bad so they listen to the speaker. That That's kind of the internal framing. But I was just getting a text from someone in the governor's office saying that, uh, you know, ultimately they think in looking at this, uh, the economy is going to be the issue and that the economy is going to get worse for a lot of states. And let me just read you the, the message I was just getting as we were coming back on. If Georgia rebounds and the virus is contained. We think the governor will be okay. We believe that most of this is fear and media reporting, and the reality will start to awaken people up to what's happening. And I think that's probably a fair situation. And the reality is that if there are other states that continue their long-term shelter-in-place policies, as some people want, uh, and we realize the economic devastation out there and Georgia rebounds, we're going to be okay. You know, I, I talked to an epidemiologist last night. Actually, on the radio, I asked her the question. There are a lot of people thinking, hey, you know, the, the heat and humidity in Georgia is going to slow down this virus. And so people are going to get more comfortable during the summer. And, and, she, and does that need to be pushed back on? And she said... That when the fall comes and temperatures cool down again, just like with the flu and the common cold, there probably will be a resurgence of this virus. But that during the summer months, when it is hot and humid outside, we are more likely than not going to be in a place uh, where people can continue on their lives. And that's good. The heat and humidity of the South will actually be good for us. And that's something that I suspect people are going to see. When life returns this summer and the virus doesn't rebound, then I think we're going to start having people realize the governor did the right thing. But here's part of it, and I want to talk to him about this at the top of the hour. What Governor Kemp is really doing is he's putting his reelection chances in your hands. And and I, I, I mean that very seriously. If this virus rebounds because a bunch of idiots went out there didn't socially distance, didn't wear masks, and the virus starts spreading dramatically in the wild, uh, Governor Kemp has probably ended the Republican majority of the legislature, which will allow the Democrats to redraw the lines in the state legislature in a way that benefits the Democrats. And that's going to be bad. That's going to be bad. And he's mindful of that. Let's be honest here. He's mindful of that. He understands the implications. And in understanding the implications, he also understands this. Something a lot of people don't appreciate who are scared and believe that the virus is going to wreak havoc on all of us, and it could. They don't particularly understand or appreciate that there are a lot of people whose businesses will come to an end unless they can get back out there. There are a lot of barbers. There are a lot of tattoo artists. There are a lot of small businesses, a lot of small shop owners who need paying customers coming into their stores. And to get paying customers who can come into the stores, they also need to allow people to go back to work to make money, to be able to buy stuff, to be able to come into their stores. And and it's the same way, you know, there there are all these stories now of possible meat shortages and the like, and we got to do something about that. Something's got to give on that issue. And 
we're going to we're going to have some problems if we can't get the economy reopened. And, you know, I, listen, there's polling out. I'm mindful of this. There are two thirds of the public, two thirds of the of adults in the United States of America say and that's roughly 200 million people say that they're willing to shelter in place until there's a vaccine. Well, they can say that, but do you really believe that? Because I don't. I, I, I do not believe because because they've got it in their head. Oh, one's coming. It's right around the corner, right around the corner. And I it's it. that's not really the case. That's not really the case. They seem to think that that's the case, but it's not the case. Maybe in January, possibly in January, maybe, potentially, but that's not really the case. And I think when it dawns on them that there's a long road here, and in fact, there are some people out there saying, you know, we've got to be ready for two to three years of this before we're really able to produce a vaccine in enough quantities to, to be able to help people or give people herd immunity. They're not going to shelter in place as long as they say they're going to shelter in place. And a third of Americans, 100 million people are already ready to be out of their house. You're going to tell 100 million Americans they can't go outside because 200 million Americans are scared? I, I just There's got to be a balance. We should be rooting for the governors trying to find that balance like Brian Kemp in Georgia instead of telling everybody just stay home and be scared. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Uh, tomorrow in the metro Atlanta area here in the state, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are going to be uh, making a flyover. We may have to pop our heads out and see them. Uh, they're going to be traveling from Dobbins and Marietta. They'll go through Sandy Springs and Roswell. They'll circle downtown Atlanta, uh, cross the airport, head down to Peachtree City, and then over towards Noonan, uh, giving lots of people in the metro area spectacle. Joining me now uh, by phone is Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, Jonathan Hoffman, the top spokesman for the Pentagon. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to be talking to you and uh, the good people of Atlanta today. Well, I, I, I was going to make so, some some South Carolina cracks, but I did see that, that you were an adjunct at the Citadel, so I probably shouldn't. <laughs> Long time ago. Long time ago. Now, let, let's let's talk about the flyover. What? Why Why the flyover of the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels? Well, I, I think the, the number one thing that the, the Air Force and the Navy wanted to do here is uh, show some tribute to those in the, the front lines that are manning our hospitals. Often the, the military are those people that we, we see running uh, to the fight. Uh, and in this case, what we're seeing is, is our frontline healthcare workers who are doing that. So this was an opportunity for us to show the appreciation to those that we've been working with uh, as they battle against COVID. Uh, and it's also a way to, to show the American people um, it's kind of a I won't say a pick me up, but a but a way for uh, for the American people to to see that their military is still out there and operating. Uh, that the the COVID, although it has had an impact on on a number of businesses around the country and a number of people, that the military is still continuing to fly and fight and do the things we need to. Uh, and we think that's important for for the American people to see. Now, I, I had a buddy of mine who saw them in New York City and said it was actually pretty impressive to to watch them fly over. But it doesn't take long. I mean, we're we're talking one uh, thirty to roughly two o'clock, uh, doing what they're going to do over Atlanta. Yeah, so they're they're doing a, a number of flyovers on Saturday. So they're gonna they're gonna start up here in uh, in the D.C. area 
uh, is a joint flyover and then head that way. So I think in D.C. they're going to be up here around about 1130 in the morning and then working their way down toward Atlanta uh, and doing the flyover there. And then uh, after that, uh, they're going to both head back to their bases. So the Thunderbirds will head back to Nellis and uh, the Blue Angels will head back to Pensacola. Uh, and they're going to conduct uh, additional flyovers in the in the coming weeks on uh, on other cities uh, in in the U.S. So the COVID is something that's hit major cities across the country. Uh, New York obviously has been the, the the key in the first place, and that's where we wanted to go first. Uh, but there's a this is something that's affected every American, and so it was important to be able to show that uh, support uh, in as many places as possible. Now, how many cities are going to be flown over? Uh, right now, it's, it's something still in the works, and, and it's, it's being adjusted. And so right now, I think we have about a dozen um, uh, joint flyovers. It'll, it'll only be the ones that have taken place on uh, Thursday and then the ones that are taking place on this Saturday. Uh, so that is going to be New York, Philadelphia, uh, Newark, uh, D.C., Richmond, and then down to uh, – sorry, Baltimore, Rich, uh, D.C., and then down to Atlanta. Uh, so we will see additional flyovers later. Uh, we've already had some uh, some units, uh, individual bases, have done flyovers with their uh, their own units. Uh, so, uh, say for Hill Air Force Base as uh, an F-35 base, so they've done some flyovers over Salt Lake and some other other locations uh, in in similar tributes to to their forces. So, uh, not the Thunderbirds, not the Blue Angels, but but still some pretty talented pilots on some pretty impressive equipment. And, and just one thing to note on that is. Look, as I said, we are we're trying to maintain our we are maintaining our our ability to to fly and to train throughout COVID. Uh, so we've taken precautions to keep our people safe, but but that means they've got to train. And so many of these flights that are taking place, these are our training flights. So taking off, uh, heading from uh, from one point to another, doing precision tactics and training uh, in in tight formation flying, and then flying home is a great way to do training for for military operations, and that's what they're doing. Well, a great way for them to do training and great way for us to see it. I, I, I see some people saying, well, aren't people going to get out and be clustered? I, I noticed on the flyer it, it, you're still encouraging social distancing and, and viewing from home if people can. Uh, how likely will people be able to see them without having to get out and get towards the interstates and the like? Well, I think that I think you're correct, and it's important to note is we do want to discourage people from uh, from getting into parks or Buildings where they're they're close together, they should they should maintain and follow the CDC and local guidance with regard to social distancing uh, and stay-at-home orders. But the, the beauty of the flyovers are is that they're up in the sky, they're they're they can be seen from a from a, a good distance, uh, they can be heard from a good distance. Uh, so people are able to to get out in their yard, maybe into a, you know nearby area where there's not a lot of people, and be able to see that. So uh, this is this is better than a, than a parade. Uh, it's, it's safer than a parade. It's it's safer than a than a, a concert. Uh, it, it's a it's a good way. That's probably the the safest possible way for for the military to show appreciation to to those people on the front lines. Well, and if you can't see them, you'll probably definitely be able to hear them as well. <laughs> yep, yep. That's they're they're they are not quiet. Well, listen, thank you very much for stopping by, and, and thank you guys for doing this. I, I know it takes a lot of planning to put something like this together, and and appreciate the team putting this together for folks. And I look forward to seeing it. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully you and, and all your listeners and uh, will be able to get out on Saturday and, and see them and, and all the um, healthcare workers who are down there at, at uh, Piedmont and Grady Memorial and Emory and Wellstar and others will be able to take the time uh, uh, to to be able to see this and, and understand the appreciation uh, that the military uh, is showing for them.
Absolutely. Thank you very much. Jonathan Hoffman, he is the uh, chief spokesman for the Pentagon. Uh, 1.35 p.m., they start the flyover. They're flying down from Washington uh, via Richmond. They will arrive at Dobbins. They will refuel. They'll take back off uh, at 1.35 p.m. They will fly down I-75 from Marietta and Dobbins Air Force Base uh, to the, the north end of the connector in downtown Atlanta. That's where 75 and 85 split off. They will cruise over towards Decatur. Uh, They will then turn back northwest and go over Brookhaven uh, to Sandy Springs. There where uh, Northside Hospital and Piedmont Hospital, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta are, uh, and Perimeter Mall. They will go up to Roswell, turn around uh, right over 400 at um, just south of Roswell. They will head back south again, crossing over Piedmont Hospital and Northside Hospital in St. Joe's. Uh, head down to downtown Atlanta where Midtown Emory is. Um, the, the, if you go over towards the, where the CDC is at Emory, you'll be able to see them as well in their initial flyover. They will circle Grady Hospital and Emory Midtown in downtown Atlanta. Uh, and then they will head south. They will cross the airport uh, at approximately 1.45 p.m. Uh, Two Dead Mares International Airport. They will head down to Fayetteville and turn to go to Peachtree City. They'll cross Peachtree City. They will turn to the east, uh, just south of Peachtree City, headed out towards Hampton. Uh, They will get to Highway 92 and then turn back to the west and head to Noonan. Uh, And so they will cross over Piedmont Hospital's operations there in Noonan as well, uh, right there at um, near Georgia 16. Uh, And then they'll be done. It'll be a heck of an opportunity to see the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds if you're in that area. But uh, be careful trying to make a special trip. I realize a lot of you guys are are not in Atlanta. You're around the state. Some of you are going to want to head up to see it. But they are advising people, if possible, don't crowd, keep your distance, and all of that. Uh, But what a great opportunity. Now, the phone number here is... 877-97-ERIC, 877 I want to play you some audio from Dr. Fauci about Remdesivir. It looks like Remdesivir, and by the way, I saw somebody on an actor last night who we follow each other on Twitter, and he said, isn't that the place where Black Widow died so they could get the soul stone? <laughs> yes, I, I thought it was too. I thought that was the planet where the soul stole it, but no, it's apparently a drug and it's one showing some success in fighting COVID-19. Here's Dr. Fauci. You said that remdesivir is not a knockout. This isn't a miracle drug, but it sounds like it is a breakthrough. Can you explain why? Well, it's a really important proof of concept because this is the first very highly powered, about 1,100 individuals, and it was a placebo-controlled, randomized trial, which I've been talking about for some time now, which is really the gold standard of how you prove something is safe and either works or doesn't work. And although the results were clearly positive from a statistically significant standpoint, they were modest. The improvement was 31% better chance of recovering and getting out of the hospital. That's important, but it's the first step in what we project will be better and better drugs coming along, either alone or in combination, drugs of this type and drugs 
addressing other targets of the virus. So it's good news, but I, I was very serious when I said this is not the total answer by any means, but it's a very important first step. The FDA is expected to grant emergency usage for this so that it could be put into practice right away. What do you know about that? How soon do you expect that? Well, you know, it, it's going to be really quickly. I was speaking with the uh, commissioner of the FDA uh, yesterday evening, last night, and he's moving along very quickly. They have not made a final decision yet. They have not announced it. But I would project that we're going to be seeing that reasonably soon. And one more on the vaccine potential. You know, Savannah, honestly, I can't go state by state with you and say this state is doing this and they have it. The only thing I could do is from 40,000 feet, just continue to urge the ones who don't have that capability to really go very slowly. And those that do go ahead and go by the guidelines. The guidelines are very, very explicit and very clear. There's a lot of leeway because we give the governors the opportunity to be very flexible, but you have to have the core principles of the guidelines. You can't just leap over things and get into a situation where you're really tempting a rebound. That's the thing I get concerned about. I hope they don't do that. Uh, yeah, and uh, that that wasn't about the vaccine. The vaccine, when I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't get it pulled up this morning. Uh, he said it on the Today Show uh, but uh, Dr. Fauci says that he does think a potential vaccine is doable by January. Uh, there's a point for me raising this I'll get to, but let me first go to the task force. At the top of the hour, I interviewed Governor Kemp. We actually he sat, he sat down with me yesterday afternoon after he released the revised orders to talk to me about them, and I'll play you the interview at the top of the hour. And one of the issues is it's going to take a lot of compliance on our part. You know, I, I mentioned, and, and it still actually really aggravates me. And a part of it, the part of the reason it aggravates me is because I didn't respond as forcefully as I should have on Sunday. Uh, but I was in the grocery store. I did not have a mask on with me. Everyone else pretty much had on a mask. I didn't have my mask with me. And, but I was walking the right way up the aisle. It was actually the, the beer and wine aisle. I wasn't going to buy beer or wine. I was going, needed to get through there to get to the end of the aisle where the bacon is and the frozen pizzas. But as I'm walking up the aisle, there's a, an older heavyset man who's wearing a Confederate flag ball cap, and he's coming down the aisle, and there's a woman in me in her shopping with her shopping cart. She's looking at bottles of wine. She's wearing her mask, and he just he, he just scoffs at her. I mean, she kind of looks at him like, don't you know you're coming down the wrong way? And it, he looked at her and just kind of huh, and then looks at me and says, all these people overreacting. And and I didn't say anything. And I really, uh, I just wanted to say, you, you ick day, my wife's got lung cancer and you're going to start spreading this virus again. And she's never going to be able to come out of the house because of people like you. And it, it just, it, oh man, it, 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 it really I, that was Sunday, and I'm still mad about it, and I don't let stuff stick with me that long. And it was just uh, seeing that and knowing the governor wants people to be able to get out and reopen society and live their lives, and it's going to be on all of us to do the necessary things to be able to do that. And there are so many idiots like that guy out there who they don't take it seriously and they've never taken it seriously and they believe the internet meme. They don't believe the experts. They believe that, you know, everybody's already got this disease. We're all immune to it anyway. That sort of nonsense that's that's circulating out there. 
and we're going to see an uptick in the virus again. And I don't think people are going to be willing to shut down the economy again, and it's it's going to cause us problems. I, I And I hope I'm wrong on that. I really do, but I've noticed that in the last 48 to 72 hours a noticeable decline in the number of people wearing masks in public. Uh, let me give you the numbers of where we are in Georgia right now. There are 27,023 cases. Uh, that's a significant increase, but hospitalizations are 5,218 and deaths are 1,140. Um, but there has been a big, uh, there was a spike, and that spike, though, comes uh, from uh, older cases coming in and also a ramp-up of testing. Let me give you the data, though. On April 20th, there were 872 cases. A week later, on April 27th, there were 580 cases. April 29th, or April 28th, 303 April 29th, 151. April 30th, there were 50 cases. Now that's gone up. That's gone up to 50. It'll probably go up to 100. And then today, thus far, eight reported cases. Uh, But the numbers are headed in the right direction. Now, what is our RT? The RT, the R0. R0 is the metric, uh, sometimes called RT. And that is the rate of transmission. You need it to be below one for the virus to begin to decline. And Georgia uh, is at 0.81 based on revised numbers. It had been as low as 0.6. It then hopped up to to 1. It's now come back down. Uh, But the trend lines are all good for the virus in Georgia right now, and that's good. Uh, The IHME modeling, uh, let me show you that real quick before I go to commercial break. This is important as well. And, and it gives you a sense of, and you can say the modeling is wrong, but again, keep in mind the models are what's going to happen depending on what we do. And it suggests that uh, we have 24 days since the peak of deaths and three days now since the peak of resources. So we're over the hump. We've got plenty of available beds. Uh, we've needed 1,805 beds at any one time. We've got 8,323. Importantly, we've needed 434 ICU beds. We've got 590 beds, and we've got plenty of ventilators available as well. That's good. That is very good. The trend lines are headed in the right direction, and people just need to be on their best behavior out there. Don't be an idiot when you go outside. Uh, I'll talk to the governor at the top of the hour about this, and you're going to hear him say, wear a mask. If you go into a grocery store, wear a mask. It is Eric Erickson here. It is 55 after the hour. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The Mike Flynn situation continues to uh, go forward. Uh, there is more and more uh, data out there that suggests the FBI did behave badly. And, you know, e- even if you put this in the light most charitable to the FBI, the investigators doing what investigators do, uh, given the situation, uh, they were certainly tone deaf. But when you add in that even the FISA court is upset with the way the FBI has handled some of this stuff. I think you got a problem, and it looks more and more like the president is ready to pardon Mike Flynn. Here's the president talking about this yesterday. What they did to General Flynn was a disgrace. Well, it was a total disgrace. It's shocking. And I hear even more information came out today. What they tried to do to destroy him and to hurt this presidency was uh, uh, perhaps in our country's history, there's never been anything like it. An absolute disgrace. 
Uh, but I'll uh, rely on what the Vice President said. I can say this, uh, and I think you understand this, John, very well. What happened to General Flynn should never happen again to a citizen of this country. Yes, please. You said that Michael Flynn would come back uh, even bigger and better. So are you going to pardon him? And if so, are you considering to bring him back into your administration? Well, it looks to me like uh, Michael Flynn would be exonerated based on everything I see. Look, I'm not the judge, but I have a different type of power. Uh, but uh, I don't know that anybody would have to use that power. I think he's exonerated everything. I've never seen anything like it. What they did, what they wrote, you see this, General. You wouldn't want this happening to you, what they did to General Flynn. And uh, it's just uh, disgraceful. So, you know, I guess we'll get to that maybe someday or maybe not. Hopefully we won't have to get there. Bring him back into your administration. Well, I think he's a fine man. I think it's terrible what they did to him. It's something that nobody's asked me, but uh, you're asking me for the first time. I would certainly consider it. Yeah, I would. I think he's, I think he's a fine man. I think he's got a great family. He loves his son. I will tell you, his son was around a lot, and he loves his son, and as people generally do. And uh, they did everything possible to destroy him. And he's still breathing very strongly, but they really hurt him very badly. Very, very unfair. I suspect we're going to see a pardon at some moment soon. Uh, maybe the president will wait until after the election to do it. But I just think that they're going to do this. Uh, they're going to pardon him. Uh, the president wants to pardon him. I, I think the case has been made enough in the president's mind for him to be able to do it and get some political cover. Uh, the media is not going to give him a ton of cover on this, but he wants to pardon Mike Flynn. He's wanted to pardon Mike Flynn the whole time. Uh, I, and I, I wonder what the what the hesitation is, and I suspect, I, I don't know, it's only speculation on my part, but I wonder if, if it has something to do with the vice president's office, because remember, it, it is objectively true Flynn lied to the vice president. And I, the, pre, the vice president holds more cloud over the president than anyone, I think. Uh, they, they talk on a daily basis. The president trusts the vice president's judgment. But there's a sustained effort to get Mike Flynn pardoned. It's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. Coming up, the governor of the state of Georgia sits down with me to talk about reopening, what it's going to take to reopen, what you need to do, and what happens if there's a flare-up. And then the polling that's out is just brutal for the GOP in Georgia. I want to discuss that with you and give you the lay of the land of what's happening in the state when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the third hour of the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to join me, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have not gotten my Rectech grill yet. I was really hoping it would come in before this weekend, but that does not appear to be the case. I, I was looking forward to to grilling and smoking this weekend. By the way, I'm I'm trying to arrange to get Matt Moore on the program. I, I kind of feel bad for the guy. If you don't you, you should know who Matt Moore is. He's a, a griller, cookbook author, musician, I mean Renaissance man, and he's got a brand new cookbook out called Serial Griller. And he's also a Georgia fan, so that that should make some of you happy. Uh, and I know he's got family in the Lake Oconee area because we follow each other on on Instagram. And uh, but he's got this great new cookbook out called Serial Griller. I figured it'd be a good distraction from the virus and politics to have him on. Hoping to make that happen next week. Right now, though, uh, we need to talk about Georgia and reopening. I sat down late yesterday with Governor Brian Kemp 
to talk to him about uh, what it's going to take to reopen the state, why opening now, and what happens if the virus rebounds. I want to give you that interview again. Uh, it was late yesterday that the governor and I sat down and talked, and uh, you get to hear me talking to Governor Kemp now. Governor Kemp, welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Eric. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give people an overview of, of what your revised orders or, or lack thereof will do for people. Yeah, quite honestly, not a whole lot changed other than the shelter in place for the for the normal citizen out there. The business practice guidelines that we have talked so much about over the last several days is still in place. That will go through. May the 13th, so we'll continue to watch the data and and then see what next steps are. I extended the public health emergency, which will allow us to continue the, the testing and a lot of the other things that we're focused on in our response to COVID-19 to out to June 12th, along with the shelter-in-place that we had early on for the elderly. That's been in place the whole time but we're going to continue the shelter in place for the elderly and the medically fragile, which is really defined from the CDC website out to June the 12th. And then the nursing home long-term care um, order that I had, that has also been extended out to June the 12th, which will allow us to continue to really double down and focus on these facilities. 40, I think it's, 42 or 43% of the deaths that we've had to COVID um, have come out of long-term care facilities. This is something that has been a problem around the country. As you know, we've been focused on it with Department of Health, um, the National Guard, the Department of Public Health, and, you know, for weeks now, and we continue to battle that every day. That is really the vulnerable population that's out there as well as those in the underserved communities. So we're going to be continuing to focus on that. And that's really what Dr. Toomey and I have discussed, is that's where our priorities need to be now, as well as on testing and contract uh, contact tracing. But we just didn't feel like we needed to have the shelter in place for normal citizens that, that are heading back to the workforce. We're still asking people to stay at home when they can and, and don't have unnecessary travel, but we're not mandating that. I think our, you know, we're, we're basically trusting our, our people here. You know, I think folks have done a great job of following these orders to help us flatten the curve and people have had to make difficult choices and I have too. And I'm very thankful to them for that, but we've learned a lot. We know how to, you know, conduct ourselves in this new world by social distancing. We, that's still a requirement when you're out in public uh, we still have the large gathering ban, but we're no longer, you know, restricting travel, if you will. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that that part of it. Uh, there have been some questions I, I can see from listeners who knew you were coming on this afternoon wanting to ask, uh, is, is there a requirement to wear masks or just a, a request to wear masks? Well, on the on the business operations, there are requirements for, for certain things, and I would just ask people to go to those one-pagers. Um, you know, and the business owners have a duty not only to protect themselves, but their employees as well as their customers. But for the general public, it's not a mandate. Um, you know, it's like Dr. Toomey has said in interviews today, if she's going or if I'm going to a grocery store or to a pharmacy, 
it's a good idea to be wearing a mask. But if you're going to the neighborhood park to walk the dogs or get a, get a run in or get some exercise or take the kids, if you can socially distance yourself from other people, then you don't need to wear a mask because you're going to be, you know, not very susceptible to contracting the virus. So that's really where the common sense part of this comes in. It's going to be kind of the new normal until we continue to get really to the to the complete other side of, of this run that we've been involved in here for several months now. I was talking to a reporter this uh, morning after I got off my first show who was asked me a question I thought was very interesting the way it was phrased. Uh, are, are you really putting you, you, the politics of this and, and the, the public policy of this in the hands of Georgia citizens, uh, essentially relinquishing control to them and asking them to do the things they need to do as opposed to telling them what to do? Well, I'm trusting people, I think, would be a, the way I've been saying it. I mean, look, you, you know, government policies are only good as long as they're reasonable and people will follow them. And I can tell you after you know, people being sheltered at home for a long time on the verge of losing everything they got, not being able to work, you know, not being able to get their kids out of the house. You know, people are people are at wit's end. You know, you can't have policies that cause our citizens to revolt or to just not follow the orders. And I think, you know, we did those things to flatten the curve and build the hospital bed capacity and get enough ventilators. And today, Eric, I mean, we've got – great hospital bed capacity. We have the least amount of ventilators in use today that we've had in weeks. And so they have helped us do that. I don't feel like it. Um, I can continue to ask them, you know, not to, to take a trip if they want to go to the mountains for the weekend. Um, I would ask them to continue to socially distance themselves if they go to the grocery store to stock up before they go or to, to wear a mask to help stop the spread and don't participate in any large gatherings. If you're, if you're going to a, a spot like that and that's just the kind of common sense that we need going forward but if people are not going to buy into what you're doing then it doesn't matter what the policy is people break the law and the rules that we have all the time i want to have you know i want i want georgians to be the solution not the problem they have done that so far and i'm trusting them to continue to do that and i believe that they will Governor, I've gotten a number of people who have asked questions regarding uh, the reopening of state government, either uh, licensing or the tag office, or in particular, the number of people I've gotten are, uh, have concealed carry permits they need to renew and are looking for a timeline on that. Well, that that would be up to the local governments. You know, we have sent signals and will continue to do so that we're working on. Uh, we've had state agencies uh, submitting plans on how they can reopen in this environment. So it's our intention to start doing that. You know, obviously, we won't be able to bring everybody back at once. We're going to continue to allow workers that are that are in a productive a role that can be productive by teleworking to continue to do that. But we've got to open up our front-facing counters in state government, whether that's the you know corporations division at the secretary of state's office, the someone needing to renew their driver's license or take a driving test or whatever. You know, uh, getting help from the Department of Revenue uh, official in person. You know, we got to start doing that, and so we're working on how we do that as we speak. Governor, and as, far as, respond permit, to... as far as the permits go, I know there are probate judges that are now doing um, appointment only for carry permits, which I certainly support. I actually supported uh, Georgia Carey's position in court the other day to allow constitutional carry, you know, during this, this period where these probate offices were not open. Unfortunately, the, the court ruled that, they, that I 
you know, they didn't have standing in the case because I wasn't the right person that needed to be sued. Huh. Let me ask you, how are you responding to the critics who say we're doing this too soon? Well, I would just point them to the data and to the advice of Dr. Toomey. I mean, she's got 40 years in public health as an epidemiologist. She's been doing this, you know, basically I think all of her adult life. She's one of the best in the business, and she she realizes we have met the gating criteria to move into phase one of the president's plan. She realizes that the criteria that's in there, that we have met that, when you think about hospital bed capacity, ramping up our ability to do testing, setting up contact tracing. And she told me, she goes, look, we don't need a government mandate to combat this now. Our citizens can do that, and uh, we're both trusting them that they will. And for the, for the critics, I would also say, you know, what are the ramifications of not doing this? You know, the Atlanta paper uh, was giving me a hard time the other day in one article, but then buried in other parts of the paper, they had an article about how, you know, the number of domestic abuse cases were up. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned before that we've seen that kind of level of trauma in our emergency room, certainly in the metro area. I'm sure it's happening all over the state. And we we got to learn to live with this, Eric. I mean, we got to talk about how we're going to get our kids back in school you know, later this summer or early fall, the virus is going to be with us for a while. And uh, our citizens can figure out with good guidance from public health officials how to deal with it. And I'm confident that we will. And, and so will our business community and our work in Jordans. But I, I would tell you that, you know, from the business side of things, nothing I've done, as we've talked before, mandate somebody open if they're not comfortable they don't have to open right now but we're simply giving them the opportunity to make that choice and the same goes for our citizens if they want to go out they have the freedom now to do that and i support that but if they don't feel comfortable doing that i would tell them not to go and then i would tell those that are medically fragile and and elderly that they need to continue to shelter in place to protect themselves Governor, last question for you. As we monitor the situation and people start venturing back out, what happens if we do start seeing a big spike of, of cases again? Do we have to go back home? Do we need? Will we have to rethink what we're doing? Well, look, we'll keep all options on the table. Um, you know, we'll continue to look at local communities. If we get a hot spot somewhere, I can certainly take more of a localized action or or give that authority to the local government. The local governments do have authority for enforcement, so they can be a big help to us for people who are not following the rules to take action against them at the local level, and obviously we have state policing powers to do that as well. You know, I want every, your listeners to know, Eric, that we fully expect to continue to see our cases go up in Georgia. The more testing we do, the more cases, the more positives we're going to see. The, the positive thing that we were seeing in the data this morning when, when we reported the new numbers was our cases were going up, but the number of positives from a percentage standpoint was dropping. That's what we want to see. You know, it's too early to, to see if that's a pattern, but, you know, we know we, we know we have a flattening, and if we can continue to see the, the, uh, the number of tests go up, but the percentage of those tests continues to drop that will let you know that we are on the right path which you know we're on now and we just need to keep it that way 
And I believe that if people follow all this guidance, when they do start moving around more, you know, we'll continue to stay in that posture. If that's not the case, then we'll look at, you know, taking a different action. Governor, look, I know it's not an easy decision. I'm glad you're there making them. Thank you very much for stopping by, and, and best of luck on this, and, and just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for having me on. Have a great afternoon. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, and uh, I put my mic on mute. I've been talking to you for about a minute. <laughs> well, the governor's interview was pre-recorded, so there was that. Uh, if you want to, if you want to text the word "data" to three three seven seven seven, you can get in real time the uh, information that's out there. Uh, and uh, other than the testing, the total test, the total test delivered or total test given is updated twice a day, but the confirmed cases is now updated more regularly. Hospitalizations, deaths, uh, also updated. Uh, you can, um, you can do this, uh, text data to three, three, seven, seven, seven. One of the things the governor points out is that we are, we have ramped up, uh, the massive, massively, the number of cases or number of tests rather. And as a result of ramping that up, the percentage daily of confirmed testing has gone down, which is a really, really good sign. Uh, now, uh, to the phones we go. Jake calling from Macon. Welcome. Hi, Eric. This is Jake from Macon. Um, great show. I just have one comment. I have several questions, but I'll, I'll save them for another time. But I, I really like you to be able to put some masks in your car. And so when you do go to Publix, you have one in your pocket and you can put it on when you go into Publix. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really afraid for you. Well, know, you know, know, as a matter of fact, I got a box uh, and, and have put that in my car as well as I, I had a listener in Atlanta send me a very nice, high quality mask. It's a cloth one that has filtration in it. Uh, that oh, man. Be, yeah. Uh, so real nice. And it's got like a silver lining. So it, it, it repels water. So I have actually started wearing that. In fact, I, I got it, I guess, uh, over uh, two days ago and started wearing it. I actually went into Publix with it yesterday. Well, that's fantastic. I went into Lowe's this morning. There were so many people not wearing masks, workers not wearing masks. And I was just irate because I'm saying, you know, why not wear one? You know, but you need well, to wear and, one you know, in the, the public. workers are <laughs> supposed to wear the masks, uh, the, and that's in the governor's order. The, wow. the, if the workers don't wear the masks, uh, that they could shut the lows down. There's a lots of lots of lots of workers did not have it on, but I I really want you to wear one because I want you to be on radio for quite a while. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate it very much, uh, and I got one. I uh, got one for my wife. In fact, this listener Atlanta sent one for my wife and and one for each of the kids and me. My wife sewed some as well, uh, just cloth ones. That we can do as a backup, but then I found on Amazon a box of disposable ones. But this 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 one the listeners hit in Atlanta is just top notch, um, and it, it's it's got like where the you know your your mask could because it loops around your ears. It's got could potentially bow out a little bit, and it's got extra cushioning there to keep the seal good. It's just it's a nice mask. Um, I'll have to find out uh, where they're from, and and I'll let you guys know. But the governor he's very insistent. If you go to the grocery store and the like, you need to be wearing masks, folk. Uh, folks, you know, Jake Caller reminds me of, of my other friend, Jake, uh, who works down in, in Houston County. And I haven't mentioned this, and I need to mention this. Uh, the census, if you haven't taken your census yet, do your census. Middle Georgia, in particular, where I am, is still falling behind. Now, there are a lot of people who don't have access to the Internet. You can also do it on your cell phone, I'm told. If you can get on the Internet on your cell phone, 
Uh, you know, it's, what's amazing is actually we're crossing this weird Rubicon of, of data where more and more people don't have Internet in their house, but they have it on their cell phone. And that's kind of weird, but you can do the census on your cell phone as well. But you need to do your census. Uh, you'll get forms in the mail here again soon. I think they're they're sending out forms to people. Do the census. Uh, now, why do the census? Well, in addition to possibly giving Georgia extra seats in Congress, they allocate money to states based on census numbers. So if Georgia's population uh, does not uh, reflect well in the census, we don't get as much money as we should, and it's all dependent on you filling out your census. So please be sure to fill out your census. Uh, it, it is important, and having Jake call or call remind me of my friend Jake, who is in charge of ramping up the census efforts in Houston County. And by the way, Houston County in middle Georgia is just crushing it, but still has a whole lot of room for improvement compared to the rest of the state. Still a lot of room for improvement in Houston, and, and they're just they're doing better than a lot of places. Bibb County, where I am, kind of is pathetic when it comes to the census. Uh, and people need to fill out their census forms because it, 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 it helps draw the lines for the legislature. It helps uh, monetary allocations to states. You know, and that money's going somewhere. It's either going to go to us or some other state, so you might as well do the census so we get the money. All, all sorts of things come into play with the census. Now, when we come back, speaking of the state legislative lines, there is polling out that suggests uh, the Republicans in Georgia are in for a wipeout. But I have learned that there is another story out there relating to this poll as well that you should know about uh, that is not getting reported. There may be some ulterior motives in the polling, even though it is an internal Republican poll. Yes, an internal Republican poll conducted and released by the state party that shows a brutal, brutal situation for the governor, for the president, for uh, the uh, for the governor, for the president, for Kelly Leffler. Man, Kelly Leffler, the polling in this poll is pretty bad for Kelly Leffler. Uh, Doug Collins uh, doing really, really well in the polling. And I am going to be I'm going to be interested to, to, to talk to you guys about it and learn more behind the scenes of the poll, because I was told a story and it makes sense to me. And as much as the polling is bad, there's something you got to keep in perspective. And I'll tell you that, that, that I won't even tease you that part. I'll just tell you it's fairly well, not in line with a lot of other polling out there. So why would the state party push out a poll like this and give it to the media? I'll explain when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The final half hour of the program for the week. And then you people can start your weekend. Well, maybe you can, you may be having to go to the office or something. Remember, it doesn't matter which station you're listening to right now. The odds are you can ask Alexa, Siri, or Google, uh, to listen to the station. So you can hear us if you're out and about, uh, or if you're stuck home, you're homeschooling your kids, you, you've abandoned, uh, my, my kids actually were technically supposed to have field day today. Uh, I don't think they're participating. You know, we, we're just not field day participants. I, I wasn't when I was a kid either. I, I thought, okay, you're going to make me go to school, but then I don't have to do school. I have to run around on the field and get hot and sweaty and, and uh, do three-legged races. I think I'll stay home. <laughs> I was that kid. Um, 
Uh, and and that that's fairly well where my kids are today too. Uh, we let them sleep in instead of participating remotely by field day. Um, <laughs> but you know, kudos to the teachers who put in a lot of time and effort to try to make them feel a part of something by doing that. But uh, if <laughs> we were already planning on giving the kids the day off when this was going to be field day at school anyway, I want to get into this polling uh, because there are some fairly brutal. GOP polling uh, regarding the Republicans in the state. An internal poll conducted for the Georgia House GOP caucus points to troubling signs for Republican leaders. President Donald Trump is deadlocked with Joe Biden and voters aren't giving the White House, Governor Brian Kemp or the legislature high marks for the coronavirus response. The poll also suggests trouble for Senator Kelly Leffler, showing the former financial executive with 11% of the vote and essentially tied with Democrats Matt Lieberman and Raphael Warnock, while uh, Doug Collins leads with 29% of the vote and outdoes Leffler among Republicans 62 to 18. The survey obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was conducted by the political polling and research firm Signal, between April 25th and April 27th, it involves 591 likely voters with a margin of error of 4%. It's one of the few recent polls that offers a snapshot of how Georgians view the government's pandemic response, though it was taken before Kemp's decision Thursday to lift shelter-in-place order for most Georgians. It was conducted at the behest of a group led by uh, David Ralston, an ally of Collins, who has feuded with Kemp over state budget priorities. So weigh the factor as you're reading the results. There are some bright spots. While voters were split over which party they trusted to contain the disease, they favored Republicans over Democrats when asked how they they, uh, trusted reviving the economy. David Perdue led John Ossoff in a head-to-head matchup, though first-term Republicans' other potential opponents apparently weren't included. The poll released earlier this, a poll released by the uh, University of Georgia steered clear of overtly political questions after the story published. Collins spokesman Dan McLagan uh, said that uh, Leffler has already spent $10 million and is in fourth place. Uh, Leffler spokesman uh, questioned the integrity of the poll. Voters are evenly split on Trump, but Kemp's disapproval rating for 52 outweighs his approval rating of 43. Leffler is deeply underwater with an approval of 20%. Georgians say their top priority is controlling the spread of the coronavirus and returning life to normal, followed by rebuilding the economy, uh, followed by access to quality health care. Trump and Biden are in a statistical tie, 45 for Trump, 44 for Biden. Purdue leads Ossoff, 45-39. Most Georgians say they are more concerned with public health than the economy. A majority of voters disapprove of the way Trump and Kemp are handling the pandemic. The General Assembly barely breaks even on the question. About 58% of voters said Georgia is moving too quickly to ease restrictions. A plurality of votes say the worst is yet to come. All right. Let me, uh, I, so I'm skeptical for a variety of reasons. Uh, most specifically, I am skeptical because uh, they, they may be a national public opinion poll, but there is a clear, I would say, um, reason for doing this poll. It is House Republic. Listen, the governor's team is doing polling as well. The Senate team is doing polling as well. So why does the House team leak their results? 
I would suggest to you that this is way, way more about the Leffler-Collins race and the speaker's ongoing feud with the governor than it actually is about the direction of the state. You know, behind the scenes, the speaker is, um, oh, and, and listen to this, that this is the methodology. Known registered voters were interviewed via live phones, text messaging, and email. Text messaging and email. That should tell you everything right there you need to know about the methodology. Text messaging and email. Um, We're going to treat a text message poll as credible. Seriously. We shouldn't. Uh, But the news media is buzzing about it. Uh, But I also think you need to understand something that's going on behind the scenes. There actually is a grudge match between the Speaker of the House and the Governor. The Speaker is trying to stretch his legs in the state, uh, getting beyond the scandal of, of helping criminal defendants stay out of court. The Speaker's trying to hang on to power. There was a presumption that the Speaker would uh, would go away, he would retire. He's now asserted that he's going to run again for office. Uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor thought they wouldn't have to deal with him after this year, and now they're going to have to deal with him. And the speaker's trying to assert some power. It was, you will recall, the speaker who joined the Democrats and came out and insisted the governor needed to close everything down. But it was also the speaker who stood on stage with the governor uh, when the governor said it was time to reopen and and now pushing out a poll saying, wait a second, everybody blames the governor, but the legislature's breaking even. When's the last time the legislature in Georgia did better than the governor in a poll? I would submit to you that there is a clear bias in this polling and it has everything to do with the speaker trying to assert some clout here and the House caucus trying to save face. Uh, The House Republicans, you will recall, have stood shoulder to shoulder with the Speaker through scandal. And this is going to become a campaign issue. And they're trying to draw some cover to them and say, oh, this is about Kemp. This is excuse-making. But come on, I'm just hung up with, this is a poll based on SMS text messaging. If you're you're going to, to, to... treat this as a credible poll when they're using SMS text messaging for polling. Um, I've got a bridge to sell you. That's just, that's garbage polling right there. Uh, And it also completely deviates from all the others. And I find it very interesting. You know, the governor's team is polling behind the scenes and and the lieutenant governor's team is polling behind the scenes. And you don't have any of that polling leaking out. I I find it very curious. And, And the credible polls, the credible internal polling doesn't leak. The internal polling that leaks tends to be polling designed to generate news stories. And the news story that they wanted is exactly this. Uh, Doug Collins's ally, David Ralston, puts out a poll showing Kelly Leffler cratering. And by the way, Brian Kemp cratering. And Brian Kemp gave us Kelly Leffler. This has everything to do with the Collins-Leffler race. Um, by the way, that race isn't even going to be on the ballot until November. And because it's not going to be on the ballot until November, it gives Leffler a whole lot of time to do any sort of damage control she needs to do. I do have to say this, and I want to be real honest here. I don't want to offend anyone. But I have not been impressed with the campaign Leffler's running. 
and they've got time. They do have time. But every time I have interviewed Kelly Loeffler, I've thrown in some questions that you wouldn't predict that would be asked. See, when I've done questions with, with Leffler each time, let me tell you what's happened. Each time I've done an interview with Kelly Leffler, and there have been two, they said, what are the topics you want to cover with her so we can get her up to speed, which is fine. That's normal, and I, I don't I don't mind it. And so I, I send them the topics. I want to ask about this. I want to ask about this. I want to ask about this. We're going to have to talk about the stock stuff. And then each time I've interviewed her, I've also thrown in some questions that I didn't tell them areas I was going to go. For example, in my last interview with Kelly Leffler, I wanted to ask her about the moral hazard issue, that if we're giving people essentially $600 to not work, aren't we creating a situation where people are incentivized to not go back to work? And if we're bailing out businesses that would otherwise collapse, aren't we creating a situation where high-risk companies that took all sorts of risks that should be going out of business due to these financial situations are going to be propped up by the government instead, which is just going to incentivize further making of risky decisions and further creating more moral hazard? And I got to tell you, uh, her answer in my last interview with her was spot on. And it, that was it was the one question, the one question where her staff had not prepared her for it. And I thought it was the one question where when she went off the cuff, she did way better. And she said, I'm paraphrasing her answer, but it was, Eric, what you're talking about is moral hazard, and moral hazard is a serious issue. We saw it in 2008 with a number of companies that were propped up, survived, and continued making bad decisions, and we do need to think about that. But right now we're in a crisis, and we can't pick and choose and decide who's creating moral hazard or not. We need to make sure that our economy is stable, and we're going to have to deal with that, but we're going to have to deal with it later. Uh, But that is a relevant concern. It was a short answer, and it was to the point, and she was right. And I, I, I don't know why the people around her have decided that she needs to give the, these these long answers when every answer she has ever given me off the cuff has been better than every answer she's been prepared to. And I get the sense that they're just not letting Leffler be Leffler. Now, I, I got to tell you, listen, um, I, I've had a couple of people who support Leffler who wanted to put stuff up at my website, The Resurgent Attacking Collins. And I'm not going to attack Doug Collins. Doug Collins is a fine guy, and he'd be a heck of a, heck of a senator. I believe that Governor Kemp had the right to pick who he wanted. He wanted to pick an outsider, and I'm going to stand by Governor Kemp, and I'm going to support Kelly Leffler. If she doesn't win, well, then she didn't win. And uh, survival of the fittest in the election, Collins will have come through that. He'll be able to withstand a runoff, and I'll go door to door. I'll write him a check, whatever. He's a good dude. I, I, I have nothing against Doug Collins. I just think the governor constitutionally had the right to make a pick, and he did, and I'm going to stand with the governor in this pick. But Leffler's going to have to pull this thing off. I'm not going to help her win. Uh, I'll be as fair as I can to both sides, and I'm not going to let one crap on the other because I like them both. But I will tell you, every time Kelly Leffler uh, speaks in her commercials and the like, she is way better when she's off the cuff in herself. And I don't know why people aren't letting her do that because they need to uh, if she's going to win this thing. And they need to do more than the ad campaign that they'd already done. That they, they got to do more. And I don't know that they will. She's got the money to if she wants to. I'll tell you the other angle here, though. So Congressman Collins has largely aligned himself with President Trump on reopening Georgia. That it was a bad idea to go on and reopen the state. 
fair position. The president takes it. The president's team takes it. Most of the voters in the state take that position as well, that it's too soon. But what if it works? What if the governor was right? What if it, it, it works enough that we can get back to work? What if it works enough that our economy rebounds and states that delay reopening uh, have to play catch up to Georgia? And Georgia rebounds as a dominant, solid economy because of what Governor Kemp has done. Well, Leffler's come out uh, in total defense of the governor saying absolutely this is the right thing to do. If that's the case, if that is the case, that gives Leffler a campaign angle in November that Doug Collins wanted you to still be at home and I supported the governor's decision to reopen the state. As a result, by listening to the governor and staying with the governor, we've become economically competitive ahead of other states. If we listen to Doug Collins, you'd still be at home and other states would be eating our lunch. It's a relevant angle. I mean, you, you can disagree, but it's a relevant angle. It's a relevant campaign angle. It distinguishes the two candidates who otherwise largely agree on everything. That's one of the crazy things about the Leffler-Collins race is that Leffler and Collins agree on pretty much everything. So here's one way to distinguish themselves. Should we have opened or not? And Collins is, is, is being careful, but he's clearly aligned with the president in this, given his statements. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I don't know how it's going to play out. And, and I don't believe the polling uh, that is clearly has an agenda that he's that far ahead and it comes from his allies. I, I don't really believe it. At the same time, I do believe he's ahead. I don't believe it's that high. But yeah, totally. There's a consistent trend line in all of the polls that Collins is ahead of her, and she's got to figure out a way to get herself out there. And it's really freaking hard to do when you're stuck at home, sheltering in place. Need to play is one more bit of audio from the president uh, regarding the situation with China and where this virus comes from. You, you said a moment ago you will soon have information on where this virus originated. Uh, the director of national intelligence today put out a statement saying that they believe it was naturally occurring. It was not man-made. But who is that? Who is that that said that? The office of the director of national intelligence. Yeah, but intelligence. Who, who in particular? Who was the man that made that statement? It was, it was a statement that the ODI. Oh, who would know that, huh? National intelligence. So we'll see. I that mean, would be your director of national intelligence. No, I, no, I, think, I think it's, I mean, you'd have to tell me who specifically, who made the statement? The statement was just put out under the office of okay, the ODI. We'll see. I mean, I have to see the statement. But, I just haven't but, seen it. But the question I had was, have you seen anything at this point? Because we're give... looking at that, John, separately from... But We're looking at exactly where it came from, who it came from, how it happened, separately, and also scientifically. So we're going to be able to find it. And my question is, have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I think that the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the public relations agency for China. And this country pays them almost $500 million a year, and China pays them $38 million a year. And uh, whether it's a lot or more, it doesn't matter. It's still they shouldn't be making excuses when people make horrible mistakes, especially mistakes that are causing hundreds of thousands of people around the world to die. I think the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves. You know, we're going to have to deal with the China situation in ways that we haven't. They clearly are far more aggressive uh, of late than they have been in the past. What's going to happen? You know, it, here's here's one of the things that we probably aren't supposed to talk about, but we probably ought to talk about. 
We have a, a defense agreement with Taiwan. If China were to invade, we're obligated to defend them. Do any of you really think we would? Because I, I don't. I, I don't think Americans have the political will to risk a war with China to defend Taiwan or Hong Kong or, or Southeast Asia for that matter. I don't think we do. And China knows that. And because they know that, they are more emboldened to be aggressive. And, and you know, I find it appalling that Twitter, which is banned in China, is allowing the Chinese government to push Chinese propaganda, anti-American propaganda on, on Twitter when Twitter is, is banned inside China. You know, Facebook refuses to do business in China. They, at one time, they wanted to. When they realized what it would entail, they walked away. And it's going to be very interesting to see how social media companies in this country respond, particularly given the situation, particularly given China's willingness to use uh, outlets like TikTok, which is Chinese run, or Twitter, which is not, to push anti-American memes, anti-American policies. And you know what's amazing, too, where the number of the blue checkmark brigade on Twitter willing to recirculate the anti-American memes from China. Ooh, China's on and Trump. It really is amazing. Trump derangement syndrome has so poisoned the well among the journalistic class that they will pursue Chinese propaganda to, to get the president. It, it's really actually horrific to see. I personally think the United States needs to engage in some asymmetric tactics against China right now, uh, one of which is we should deploy every tactic in our arsenal to undermine uh, the great firewall of China, their, how they restrict information from China. Here's Nikki Haley talking about the situation. You know, she's got her uh, – Tim Chapman came on the other day to talk about their Stop Communist China um, petition for Congress to investigate. Here's Nikki Haley. This is what the Chinese do. This is what the the two years I was at the United Nations. This is what they do. They basically will call out others and do say things to others, but they don't want it said back to them. And you know, the truth is, the Chinese are never going to admit fault. They're never going to admit that they did anything wrong. And that's why the United States has to be smart. We have to strategically figure out how we're going to deal with China for the long term and really make sure that we call them out and let them know that we're on to them. We're going to have to figure out a way to deal with the China issue. And I don't know that we are. I think our Pentagon leaders are, but our political leaders have long accepted China is going to be more dominant than us. And so they haven't even bothered to think about it. And that's unfortunate. I feel like we've got so many political leaders on both sides of the aisle rooting against us and for China these days because they just expect China to become dominant. And we should not let our political leaders do that. You guys have a great weekend. We'll talk about this more on Monday.